0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and. Join me in the book of 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at this brief epistle from the apostle to an unnamed group of people. But the good news is it's for us too today. The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And although these words were first penned practically 2,000 years ago, they still throb with life they come alive as the Spirit of God helps us to understand. I'm going to begin with verse 1 and read through verse 7 from the New American Standard Bible. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. The King James Version, and some of you may have it, translates that phrase, a precious faith, which indeed it is. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. Over a century ago, in Lidford Brook, a quaint, remote village in Great Britain, there had been an evangelistic campaign led by an evangelist. He was a rather odd and elderly man. His name was Ebenezer Wooten. Many people had come to hear the gospel preached As he led this campaign in this village, many had come to know Christ. The time came for the meeting to end. He didn't have a crew to work with him. He just traveled alone, and it was his responsibility not only to bring the gospel, but also to take the tent down, pack it up, put it in his wagon, and go to his next destination. As he was doing that, a young man who had... Been on the outskirts of the meetings. He never came under the tent, but more than once he came and listened with curiosity and interest to what was being said. He came. He was a shy young man. He came up to Mr. Wooten he said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And without even looking at him, as he continued to take stakes out of the ground to uproot the tent, Mr. Wooten said, it's too late, shocked. This young man said, surely it's not too late because the meeting is over. Surely I can be saved yet. And he says, it's too late, my boy, it's too late. Hundreds of years ago, Jesus paid for your sin. He gave his life and became the flashpoint for the wrath of God on the cross. He himself becoming sin, your sin, my sin, the sin of the world on our behalf in order that we could have eternal life. My boy, nothing is possible for you to do to get eternal life. You couldn't do it for yourself. This reminds me of something which a Philippian jailer said to the apostle Paul and Silas, his companion. They were imprisoned for preaching the gospel in the colony city of Philippi. And a great earthquake occurred. The jailer was asleep. He was awakened. And he assumed that all those prisoners in the bowels of that jail would have escaped. He was about to kill himself knowing that he would be held responsible for those escapees. And it was punishable by death to go to sleep on duty. And then out of the darkness of the dungeon, he heard... Paul's voice saying, we're here. And he was so glad to hear that. Then he asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Obviously, he had heard them singing at midnight because they were so beaten and bloodied by perhaps his own hand lashing them. And the way they handled that, and they in their singing would have preached the gospel in a way. He said, what must I do to be saved? And then the answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do you understand that you contribute absolutely nothing to your salvation? Do you know it's impossible for a person to contribute to his or her salvation? Do you know why? Because the Bible is very clear that we who know Christ, before we knew Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That's what Paul writes to the Ephesians. We had no spiritual life. Christ came to us. He found us. Oftentimes we hear people say, well, I found Jesus this way, or I found Jesus in that place. Look, you didn't find Christ. He found you. By his own description of his mission, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. You cannot claim any responsibility for your salvation. None. It's all the work of the Lord. The Apostle Peter knew that. We're going to see in a moment how he follows this beautiful progression, this logical progression as far as the gospel message is concerned. It's God's gospel. That's the way Paul describes it as he introduces the letter to the Romans. It is the gospel which God thought up, in which God initiated, which God executed in order that you and I could have the possibility of life. In that passage that I mentioned a little earlier today from John 1, verse 4, says about the Word being Jesus incarnate. It says that in Him was life. The life of God is available to us. And when Christ comes and He saves us, what happens is He calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We were in a tomb of sin, and He called us out of that. Just like when He called Lazarus out of the tomb. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth having been dead for days in that particular tomb, in that graveyard. So what we know about the Lord Jesus is that he takes the first step. He takes the initiative. He comes on a search and rescue mission to save us from our sin. Something has to... Be given to us before we can receive eternal life. In the book of Ephesians, I've already mentioned chapter 2, where the Bible says, As for you, believers in Ephesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Later in that passage, it says, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, grace through faith not of works, lest any person should boast. But on the heels of making that great statement about how we're made right with God, in Romans 5, the same writer, Paul, says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in Ephesians 2.10, the Bible says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Be sure we can't do anything to save ourselves. But we were saved for good works. And so good works are a part of being a believer. In fact, a person who does not have works that are in keeping with the presence of the living God in his or her life is really a puzzle. Probably doesn't really know the Lord if there's no good works coming out of your life is what the Bible says. Remembering that you're not saved By good works. Peter knew that. Have you ever stopped to think about who Peter was before he met Christ? We have some insight into who he was. He was a fisherman. He was part of a business partnership with John and James, probably along with his own brother, Andrew, and they had a fishing business with the father, Zebedee, of the men who became apostles, James and John, the sons of that man. And the result of this was that in the case of this man, Peter, he met Christ. Christ found him. And do you remember the first thing he said to Peter? I'm talking about Jesus now when he said to him, You are Simon, that's his given name, his Hebrew name. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, that was his Aramaic word, which translates into Peter, which is the Greek name. He's called here by himself in this letter, Simon Peter, showing who he was before he came to Christ and who he was after having come to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord found this man, Simon Peter. When you think about his life before he came to Christ, he was kind of rough around the edges, wasn't he? He was. He was very impulsive, very impetuous. He usually spoke before he thought, and he acted before he should have. Sometimes he did what none of the other men were willing to do. He had a great deal of courage. He takes a bum rap too often because he was the only one who was willing to step out of the boat when Jesus was seen walking on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm. And he said, Lord, is that you? to which Jesus said, yes. And he said, may I come to you? And he said, come on, Peter. Peter got out of the boat, starts walking to the Lord. But then after a while, he takes his eyes off of Christ. And what happens? He begins to drop like a rock. And then he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does exactly that for him. He couldn't help himself. He was going down for drowning, undoubtedly. But Jesus came and he saved him. What a wonderful Lord we have. And We see in Simon Peter an individual who was pretty much an independent operator whom Christ saved. Well, let's turn our attention now to this text and look at it in more detail. We're going to look at the idea of faith in this passage of Scripture. It's mentioned, as I already did say earlier in the first verse, but it comes up again in the Verse 5. We're going to look at the details of verses 5, 6, and 7 as they apply to you and me. This faith, we're going to look at three areas of this faith. We're going to look at the nature of this faith, or you could say the character of this faith. We're going to look at that and how that's described, how that applies to us. Then we're going to look at the inward disposition that we have because of that faith and how that enables us, empowers us to win the fight, the good fight of faith against evil around us and in us. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the way this faith impacts our personal relationships. So let's begin digging right in to verse 5, considering this matter of the character of the faith that we have in Christ. Verse 5 says, Now for this very reason also applying all diligence to your faith supply moral excellence. I want to take note of the fact that Peter is commanding those who receive this letter and he's being led by the Spirit of God to do so, that they are to apply all diligence. And you might say, Hey, I thought we're not to do anything we're just to wait until the Lord comes and finds us. Well, He does find us, but when He does find us, I've mentioned this too, I know, that He wants us to grow in obedience to Him. Do you know that the Lord would never say to you and me that we are to do something until we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior? In John 1.12... A very familiar verse, the Bible says, but as many as received him, that it would be Jesus. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's usually where we stop with that verse. It's a great verse. But if we were wise, we would read the context. Always read what comes before and after a verse in the Bible to get the full impact of it. And in the 13th verse, John goes on to write, those who receive him were born not... Of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they were born of God. This echoes what Jesus says later. Most of you are familiar with this conversation he had with a man whom he called the teacher of Israel, a man named Nicodemus. And he told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of course, this puzzled. Nicodemus, just like it would puzzle you and me, he went on to say, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he go into his mother's womb and be born again? Of course, Jesus was not talking about a physical rebirth. He's talking about an internal change that came when a person trusted Christ. God works. He brings us to life. He regenerates us. He births us spiritually spiritually so that we can respond to Him. Regeneration is the term that's used by scholars when they talk about that event. It's a mysterious thing. It's the work of the Spirit of God, but we are grateful that that is the case. So he says, applying all diligence in your faith. And where does this faith come from, by the way? Well, it comes from Jesus Himself. The Apostle Paul's own testimony was, I have been crucified with Christ, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the body, I live by the faith, listen carefully, of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the faith of Christ in us. Remember, he's in us. He is life. He gives us all things pertaining to life. That would be spiritual life, which has to be given to us by him, and then Also, not just pertaining to life, but also to godliness is what the Scripture says. And that faith comes to us from hearing the Word of Christ. We have become partakers, we saw last week, of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we become little gods. What does it mean? It means that God comes to live in us by the Spirit of Christ and by the Holy Spirit of God. If you look carefully at what the Bible teaches, those truths emerge so that He lives in us. And by His presence in us, we have access to His faith as we trust in Him. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. That's what Jesus says in John 15. But through Him, we can do whatever He gives us to do. But it's always through Christ. It's His work in us. So we're in all diligence... To supply moral excellence is the first thing that is true of the character of a person who has received Christ into his or her life and is having that life of his, Christ, to inform us and guide us in our lives. The word translated moral excellence carries with it the idea of spiritual energy. It's the energy of the Holy Spirit. We have become partakers of the divine nature. This moral excellence, this great energy which comes into us. You may recall a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he said to him, fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying out of my hands. Evidently, Timothy was a bit timid, and he was under a great deal of pressure trying to lead the church at Ephesus. He was younger than a lot of the people in the church, but God gave him that responsibility. The Apostle Paul said in his writing to the Philippians about Timothy, Timothy was an outstanding person. He said, I have no one else like him, and he had a lot of associates, a lot of disciples, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And he was that kind of leader, that kind of spiritual man, this kind of pastor. But he was timid, and he was under a lot of pressure. He had let his gift and the faith that he had begin to sort of go out. It was still there, but it was losing steam. So he uses this metaphor of blowing it or fanning it into fire. Some of you like to camp, and you know, after you've slept all night, if you didn't put wood on the fire, there are ashes where there had been a fire the night before. And when you awaken, you think, I wonder if any of these coals are still alive. You start fiddling with the fire, or what once was the fire. And you may see some, and what do you do? You begin to fan it into flame. You blow on it, and, or you just kind of fan it, and then you put some kindling on it, and before long you've got a good fire again. Some of you are here today and you've let that gift of the Lord, the gift of life, grow cold on the hearth of your heart. And today is a day for you to understand you don't have to stay there. If you have received the life of Christ, you're discouraged. I was talking to a brother before the worship service at the 9 o'clock service. And he was talking about this whole period of time is a time of great distress for people. He's a medical doctor, and he sees a lot of people. And he says, it's taken a toll on me personally, and I know it is on the people who come to me for care. And we are like that, but here's the good news for us. We can fan into flame the gift of salvation. We can trust the Lord. And then in that same section of Scripture, He goes on to say, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear. Some of you have been afraid. We've had fears about our own health or the health of our loved ones or what's going to happen in our country because of all the ferment in our country. And what we know is we do not have a spirit of fear but of power. And that word power is the same word that is used by Jesus when he's talking to the apostles Right before he ascended into heaven, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. The good news for us is that when Christ comes and lives in our lives and the Holy Spirit lives, we have power, don't we? We've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of self-control. I'll get to those other two items as we go forward and think about this. Even David, the great king, had to remind himself to do exactly what Paul was reminding Timothy, his son in the faith, to do. Many times in his writings, he'll say something like he says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. So we have to remind ourselves, you know what you and I need to do daily? Sit our souls down and give them a good talking to. Encourage them to begin to praise the Lord. There are many times I don't feel like praising God. How about you? Right? Does that mean we shouldn't? Well, quite frankly, the moment I don't feel like it is the time I need to do it worse than other times. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Bible says in everything give thanks for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. If we're in Christ, there's no situation that would dictate that we don't have a reason to thank the Lord and to praise the Lord. And when we praise God, what happens is it's so liberating to us. The Lord wants us to understand the importance of this energy, this Spirit-led, Spirit-filled energy in our lives. And look at what He goes on to say in verse And in your moral excellence, knowledge, supply knowledge in addition to this spiritual energy. This is something we're commanded to do. It's not something that we can't participate in. What enables us to participate in it, I'm going to say it again, it's the magnificent promises of God. How does faith get developed, by the way? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Do we have access to the Word of Christ? It's in the Bible. Open the Bible. Read the Bible. Listen to what God has to say. And then do what Jesus tells us to do. He would not command you to do something without equipping you for that. And He's done that by giving us His Spirit. Then we add to that knowledge. The word knowledge, as we've seen previously... This is the word that is not as thorough as the word that he has used elsewhere. The first time he uses the word knowledge, it's the idea of intellectual knowledge coupled with intimacy. It's that relational kind of knowledge, the first two words. This word is kin to it, but it doesn't have the intensity as it relates to the intimacy that is part of our relationship to God. It's something that's pretty much a mind activity. Now let's remember that God tells us to love the Lord our God with all our mind as well as all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. The Christian faith is a thinking person's faith. It's not the purview of intellectuals. That's not what I'm saying. It's just God's given us a mind. He's given us the capacity to read and we understand If we have Christ living in us, the Holy Spirit teaches us what we need to know. And then we can apply it with His help and His power. And He gives us insight and understanding. I think about when Solomon is writing in the early chapters of the book of Proverbs, he says to him, My son, we don't know which son of his it was, but he says, My son, above all else get insight. We need insight. Proverbs 1, 7 says... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We get knowledge from the Lord by fearing Him. We get wisdom by fearing Him. Wisdom is the proper application of those things that He teaches us. He speaks to our minds and we understand and we trust Him to enable us to accomplish what He gives us to do. This is not a mechanical process. It's a spiritual process because the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us this and He gives us the power to implement it. It's not necessarily a big experiential thing, although there could be experiences associated with this kind of acquisition of moral excellence slash spiritual energy or this idea, great idea of knowledge. But what we must understand, it's possible to get all fired up. Have you ever gotten real fired up about the Lord? You know, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten all fired up about the Lord. And then something happens to douse that fire, the fire of the Spirit's quenched in my life. And I begin to question myself. And sometimes I've even questioned God. What's going on here, Lord? I don't understand this. But what we need to know is we keep going forward with the knowledge of Christ even when we don't feel it. We go forward and we trust Him. We fear Him. The Bible says it's not good to have zeal without knowledge or to be hasty and miss the way. Zeal is a good thing if it's accompanied by knowledge. But without knowledge, it can really take us down a long and winding road that is not designed for us by the Lord. In Hosea 4.6, the Bible says, My people perish for lack of knowledge. The Lord knows that knowledge is necessary for us. The knowledge of the Word of God is necessary for us if we are going to, with all diligence, add to our faith, supply to our faith moral excellence, and then knowledge and these other things. David prayed to the Lord. He said to the Lord, O oh Lord, teach me your way that I might walk in it. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then earlier, another psalm says this. David speaking on behalf of God. and God says, I will instruct you and I will teach you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do you know the Lord loves each one of you? If you're His child, He has a plan for your life. He wants you to get in on that. And a part of it is understanding the important role that the Holy Spirit plays and then the knowledge that the Word of God applies to our lives. And the Spirit of God gives us insight and the power to go forward. Now let's move on to the inward dispositions of this faith that enable us to overcome the enemy. We have internal opposition. We also have external opposition. I'm going to begin with the internal opposition. Let's look at verse 6. And in your knowledge, self-control. For me, my biggest problem is not you or anybody else. My biggest problem is not Satan My biggest problem is me, my flesh. And if you understand what that means, the Bible talks a lot about the flesh, especially Paul does in his writings. And it's sort of mysterious. What's he talking about? I like what Richard Lovelace says about this. He says, my flesh is my personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. That's my flesh. And there's this battle Paul talks about that goes on in the hearts of believers that the Spirit is opposed to the flesh and the flesh is in opposition to the Spirit and they're in this big struggle for domination in my life. And sometimes I give in to the flesh and it seems to overrule the Spirit of God. But God is not mocked. Understand that. In that same book of Galatians, Paul writes to them, says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Look, sow to the Spirit. That's what we're called to. That's what we're created in Christ to do, to follow the Lord, to yield to the Lord, and ask the Lord to infuse us with Himself, His power, and help us to supply our faith with all diligence with the energy of the Spirit of God. And then with the knowledge we need, then self-control. The Bible says a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. We need to deal with our internal battles by trusting the Lord to do what He promises us to do to do what he says we're to do. In Colossians chapter 3, we read it earlier, that we're to put to death, and there's this long list of things that we're to put to death. And it's an impressive and a daunting list, actually. But when you look at it, how can we do that? So many of us feel like we're trapped in some sort of ongoing sin in our lives. If you know Christ, you can get out of that. The Bible is very clear in this passage of Scripture. We need to listen to what God says. We need to believe it, and then we need to apply it. And we need to realize that we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ by making no provision for the flesh to obey its lusts. We ask the Holy Spirit to fill us. We let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly as we also read from Colossians chapter 3. And when the Spirit of God is moving in our hearts because we have been men and women who expose ourselves to the Word so that we can meditate on it day and night, so that we may be careful to do everything written in it, then we find success spiritually. God delivers us. But we always have to be on the alert against our external enemy. He doesn't give up easily, does He? He's like a Lion seeking someone to devour, Peter talked about in his first letter. But we know that greater is he who is in us, do we not, than he who is in the world. It's not about my ability to fight the devil. He's ominous, and he is much more ferocious and powerful than I am. But Jesus Christ conquered him, and he wants to conquer his predominance in my life and his influence in my life. And what I need to do is believe what the Scripture says and act on it in the book of 1 John. It says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith in Jesus Christ. Always comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? And His power. So the first disposition is this disposition of self-control. The second is contained in the next word that is used. The next characteristic, perseverance. This word is a word that's used by Paul in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And let me simplify it for you in the interest of time. It's a compound word. The introduction, the little prefix means under, and then the main idea is dwelling. Dwelling under. Dwelling under great pressure. I know many of you here today are living in a pressure cooker. You could identify with Paul when he said... We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about the hardships we faced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. This is the great apostle Paul. He had that. He said, we we thought we were dying. Some of you think you're dying, not physically, but just emotionally because of the pressure. But notice what he goes on to say. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. It all comes back to our trusting the Lord in the midst of our difficulty, whatever form it may take. We're to abide under trusting the Lord. People say ugly things to you, say ugly things about you. Look, you're in Christ. You are going to overcome. And one of the ways you do overcome is by perseverance. And need I remind you that the Bible says in Romans 15 verse 4, it says, whatever was written in earlier times, talking about the Old Testament, whatever was written in earlier times was written for your instruction so that through perseverance, there's that word, same word, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We're Not to give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. We're to stir one another up. Not only are we to fan into flame that part of our lives that we have allowed to die down through neglect or through opposition, but we're also to encourage one another, and we're to use God's Word to do it. Read your Bible personally, but when you read, get a word for yourself and share it with someone else that might need it for encouragement. So now, the last part of the message is faith expressing itself. This faith always expresses itself in personal relationships. Look at verse 7. Really the last part of verse 6. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brother kindness. Brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. So why do you suppose the Lord introduces godliness at this point? Well, He has a reason. I think the reason is because He wants to remind us that all we do is to honor Him and to glorify Him. Before I can consider my relationship with someone else, I must first make sure, going back to Colossians 3, that whatever I do, I'm committed to doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? In a way that would honor Christ and would reflect His life and put Him first in my life. And that suits me then to be able to be kinder to other people, to care for other people. He goes on to talk about brotherly kindness. The word Philadelphia, actually, in the Greek language, if you were able to read Greek, that's exactly what you would read. Philadelphia is the word. It means brotherly love, doesn't it? Brotherly kindness. How much damage is being done in churches, in the body of Christ, because of a lack of brotherly kindness? Here again, the word kindness is one of the features of the fruit of the Spirit. Perseverance is, self-control is, and there's parallelism here between the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and this treatment of this kind of life, the Spirit-led life, that God would have us to do through the Apostle Peter. And then finally, it's the word love. This is the unique word in the New Testament for love. It means the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. Do we deserve the love of the Lord? I think that's been established today. No, we didn't and we don't. But we do get it because of who He is and because He has chosen us to be His children. And He wants us to love one another, to lay down our lives for one another. Sam also read this statement about the love of God, the love which is the bond of unity. The thing which unifies us is the love of Christ. And we have Christ living in us. And you probably know this. In Romans chapter 5, the Bible says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we're without excuse. We need to deny ourselves in relationships It takes a lot of self-denial, doesn't it? I don't know about you. I've only got one person I can think of, and that's me, about trying to figure out why I'm so contrary sometimes and so ornery in relationships and don't want to have anything to do with people that I don't like. I want to avoid them and all that kind of stuff. Well, look, it's because of my flesh. But I can deny myself my flesh. Trust in the Lord. And wonder of wonders... He actually does what He says He will do. He will love people through you and me. And He doesn't limit it, by the way, to church people. Because He's talked about brotherly love in the word that's translated brotherly kindness, He must have had in mind what He had heard Jesus say in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, love your enemies. Whoa, dude, this is a little too much. Pray for those who persecute you. No. Lord, not that. Not her. Not him. But Jesus says, this will be the hallmark that will set you apart as a child of God and my follower and will be used by the Spirit of God to convince people of the reality of Christ as their Savior. As we finish today, I just want to make a couple of references about how we live this life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, we live this life not based on our own adequacy, but on the adequacy of God in Christ. Do you know Christ? If you do, you have more than enough to live the Christian life. And you need to get on board. You're wasting your life. You're living an inferior Christian life because you're shutting him out from part of your life. He's entitled to all of your life, not just some of your life. And he wants that role in your life. And it doesn't cramp you or mess you up. It it fulfills you like nothing else when you yield to Him. And the last thing I would like to mention in Colossians chapter 3. It's a great passage, isn't it? But Colossians 3, verse 4. Almost in passing, it's easy to miss it. Paul writes about this matter. He says, as he's talking about, let us seek the things above, set our minds on the things above for Christ is seated in the heavenlies. But he this says, Christ who is your life, Jesus is our life if we know Him. And He's the one who gives us the strength and the power to do what He calls us to do, be it ever so difficult. With God, all things are possible, even when with us it's impossible. Let's pray. Lord, we ask You to remind us of these truths as we leave here today. Bring them to our minds in the coming days creating us a deep hunger to be all that You want us to be. We ask You to fill us, control us by Your Holy Spirit. We say we want to submit ourselves to You by setting You apart as our Lord in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you leave, if you take your ballot that you hopefully have filled out, Put it in the plate of one of the men standing at the door there. And God bless you. Hope to see you next next Saturday night or next Sunday morning and again on Sunday night. God bless.